Happy Mother's Day. That's to the moms. <laughs> the rest of you have duties and obligations that come with this day, and you know what they, hopefully you know what they are. <laughs> uh, I always think on Mother's Day, it's a good time to thank God for your mother, and uh, I know lots of relationships with mothers are complicated, so, uh, but a beginning point we all can share would be thanking God that through our mother, we were given life. So you could begin there. If there's more that she did, then thank God for those things too. Or, but I begin with uh, thanking God for the fact that nine months or something close to that was committed to you being here. And I think that's a great place to begin. Is, is Mother's Day should be a day of gratitude. Even if things are mixed and complicated, it should be a day of gratitude. And uh, this morning, I was thankful for uh, the mother that I'm married to. Um, we've got our house listed online, so people uh, had bookings this morning to see our house. At 9.30 in the morning was the first one. And so that meant my wife had to clean the entire house spotless before she took our kids out for breakfast. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> We're going to be paying her back all day. We're going to try our best to make it up. But anyhow, I don't know how your morning went. I don't know if there's uh, toast crumbs in your bed or whether you made a phone call that was significant or received one. I don't know how it's going, but happy Mother's Day. Uh, I want to uh, just totally divert to something different here. I want to share a story out of Canada's history, and it's a story of why we have a stained constitution. So I wonder if I can get that picture up there. Um, there is an image, and, and hopefully we'll be able to get it up there. There we go. Uh, anyhow, in 1983, it was a year after the signing of the Proclamation of the Constitutional Act of 1982, when the unthinkable happened. A young man appeared at the Library and Archives Canada to ask to see the proclamation. There seemed to be nothing out of the ordinary about him, recalled archivist Larry McNally, who was working the front desk that day. The request sounded normal to me, though no one had ever asked to see the act before, he said. So he sent the man up, and one of the copies was retrieved from storage, not the one that was signed uh, personally by the Queen and uh, the Prime Minister, Pierre Trudeau, and, and, uh, and the Justice Minister, John Chrétien, um, because that original one had been signed in the rain, and so it had raindrops on it, and it was sort of, you know. But this was the pristine one. This was the one that was in mint condition. So they pulled that out so that this young man, who was an art student at a college, a nearby college, could see for himself the proclamation uh, that Canada's constitution had been patriated to Canada. So pretty exciting. So as he peered over it, the young man pulled a glue bottle out of his suit and poured out red paint on the Constitution. Later in court, Peter Grayson, that was the young man, explained that he had doused the document in protest of a decision to allow the United States to conduct cruise missile testing over Canada airspace. And that's how one of Canada's most historic documents ended up with a blob of red on top. Now maybe Peter should have listened to his mother, because most mothers do say at some point or another to treat other people's property with respect. 
Now, Peter did have to spend about 100 days in prison and two years on, uh, on, uh, under probation. But um, I'm telling you all this because I really want to talk about the Constitution is a great segue for what I'm going to talk about today. We've been in a series where we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And today, I get to talk about how Jesus changes our relationship to the Old Testament law. Now, I don't know if that sounds interesting to you or not, but it's sort of similar to what happened with the Constitution. Because Canadians and Americans um, both used to be under the old laws of England. But uh, through different paths, we did take very different paths, we, we arrived at a similar location today. We have our own Constitution, and we're not under the old Constitution of England, but under a new one. Now, America's path was a war of independence in, uh, what, 1776, and ours was more polite, more Canadian path. We waited 200 years, and then we said, please, may we have our own constitution, right? Very Canadian. Maybe Peter Grayson, who put the stain on the thing, he was, he was a little, being a little more American that day, you know. <laughs> I want liberty. But the rest of us just sip our Tim Hortons cups and, and we're polite. So the result's the same. We're not under that old constitution, the old British constitution anymore. We do have liberty uh, to lead our countries in the way that we, are see, that we see fit. And something similar happened to the earliest Jewish followers of Jesus the Messiah. And I want to read, read it to you from the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. It says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is the series we're going through, and lots of people have said, I love the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, lots of famous people have said they love the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, presidents and leaders and all sorts of different people throughout history have said, man, I really love the Sermon on the Mount. And someone write, once wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis, famous author, you might know him, he wrote like the Narnia books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and a whole bunch of other books. But he was a Christian author, and someone wrote him a letter saying, it seems to me that you don't like the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what C.S. Lewis wrote in response after being criticized for not caring for the Sermon on the Mount. That was the actual quote, not caring for the Sermon on the Mount. So he replied, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. How can someone like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. So what is C.S. Lewis getting at? What is he talking about? Well, I think he was talking about encountering the holy requirements of God. 
that are found in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, they are, they, they're a notch higher, a significant notch higher than even what the Israelite people had as their law in the Old Testament. It's even more, uh, it's a higher standard. So we often think that we're good enough Or that, or, and, we're all, and we are actually all pretty good at justifying our actions and motivations. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it often will take you from feeling self-righteously good to realizing that God's standard is so much higher than how we're living. I mean, the Old Testament said, don't murder. And then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you've heard, don't murder. But I say, don't even be angry with someone. Whoa. Really? He said, in the Old Testament, it was taught, you know, not to get divorced. But in the New Testament, you shouldn't even lust after, or not to commit adultery. Sorry, not to commit adultery. But in the New, but Jesus is now saying, but I tell you, you shouldn't even lust after another woman who's not your wife. Really? You've heard that you should love your neighbor. And I tell you, you should even love your enemies. Really? I mean, these are the kind of sledgehammer blows that knock the self-righteousness out of us. You say, well, I do not have control of my anger. I, my lust is not, uh, I struggle with that area. And I often do not love my enemies. Or do I ever love my enemies? These are the kind of things that take us from going, man, I like this Sermon on the Mount to going like C.S. Lewis Does anyone like this? It shows us how holy God is, what his requirements are, and suddenly we realize we're not good enough and we don't measure up. Now, I think the verses I read to you already would have also had a sledgehammer effect on the earliest Jewish listeners. Was Jesus actually proposing that we abolish the Old Testament law that Moses received on Mount Sinai? What, what The Old Testament law, I mean, the Jewish people were very proud of the Old Testament law. It really set them apart from the nations around them. God had given it to them when they were a nation of slaves that had escaped from Egypt. And it helped set them up as a nation, as a people, as a very distinct people. In fact, God was going to show himself, reveal himself to the nations of the world through this nation of Israel through his interactions with him, through his leadership of them. The Old Testament law was an incredible gift from God. And so here, when Jesus suddenly starts talking crazy about the law, they go, whoa, Jesus, are you here to give us a new law, to get rid of the old law, to abolish the law? And Jesus, right away, we find him clarifying so verse 17, that's the first verse, says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's clarifying right away. Because some people in the crowd are saying, you want to do away with the law. That's what defines us. That's what makes us who we are. In fact, that's our path to righteousness before God. Many would have believed that. I've, he says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus taught that the law was good. If it wasn't, he would have come to abolish it. But he didn't. The law was a wonderful gift from God to the nation of Israel. But as Jesus is teaching this, he is unfolding a picture of something new. 
So he's going from, you understand what it's like to be a Jew and to live in the nation of Israel, but I'm going to talk to you about a whole new kingdom. The kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God where Jesus himself was the king. And so he's up on the mountain. He's got his disciples around him. There's also a crowd that's there who aren't his disciples. And they're hearing what are the elements of this new kingdom. The first week we talked a little bit about um, who are the fortunate ones in the kingdom. Is it the rich and the powerful and the famous? And we find out surprisingly that the meek and those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and peacemakers, uh, they are actually... And, a couple more, I didn't list them all, but they're the one. The merciful, the meek, they're the ones who are going to inherit this kingdom. They're the ones who are going to have a place in this kingdom. And that's sort of, you know, who's the fortunate ones in this kingdom? It's not who you'd expect. It's not the usual suspects. This is a strange kingdom that Jesus is talking about. So to go from the nation of Israel to go to the kingdom of God, which was one nation of Jewish people to something totally different that wouldn't even be national. Actually, it would transcend national. It would be global. It would be something that would find its way into the nooks and crannies of all the nations of the world like it has today. There's about 2 billion people that claim the name of Christ and you find them in Asia and you find them in uh, Africa and South America and you find them in Europe and you find them in North America and, and maybe there's some in South, what's that, the South Pole? What's that? Antarctica, yeah, I couldn't think of what it was. Australia, you find them all over the world. They're not of one ethnic origin at all. Because Jesus made a transition here from the nation of Israel to this multi-ethnic people of God under the kingly leadership of Jesus. Last week, uh, Kurt Buchanan did an incredible job just talking about the identity piece, being salt and being light in the world, preserving salt and a light that reflects God to the world. And that was, you can hear it on the podcast, well worth listening to. But now we're just talking about Jesus and the law. So, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. So what kind of things did Jesus fulfill? Well, let me give you just a few of them. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 um, says this. It says, for Christ, it says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Forget that. I'm not going to explain it. That's a lot. But then it says, for Christ, Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So what did Jesus come to fulfill? I'll give you a list. Here's the first one. The Passover. Jewish people celebrated. We came out of Egypt. God provided through the blood of a lamb. We were spared from death. And now Jesus says, or the the followers of Jesus come to realize that Jesus is our pure Passover lamb. We don't even celebrate the Passover anymore. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus fulfilled that part of the Old Testament law. So do Christians celebrate the Passover? You can if you want. Some do. But it's not required. It is required to do what Jesus did say to do, and that's to remember him through the Lord's table or supper or or communion, it's sometimes called. Because he fulfilled that. That lamb that was slain and blood put on the doorposts on their way out of Egypt 
was just a symbol, of a perfect symbol, wonderful symbol of the, the Jesus who would be the Passover lamb for us. That the penalty for our sins would not come to rest on us, but pass over us as well. So Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Hebrews 5, 1 says this about priests, okay? Because the Old Testament Jews had priests. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, okay? So they knew that. Then here, Hebrews 7, 27, it says, unlike the other high priests, he, this is Jesus now, He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins like the old priest did, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So we said that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Now we realize he's also the priest. He's the high priest. He's the one who, what does a priest do? He goes between the people and God. People can't come into the holy presence of God, so come, someone comes on their behalf and offers sacrifices. Well, when Jesus died for people's sins once and for all, that put an end to the Old Testament priesthood because he fulfilled it. Those Old Testament priests were doing an important role, but when Jesus came along, it was fulfilled. And the blood sacrifices, done. Because Jesus was the one when he offered himself. It was fulfilled. Passover fulfilled, priesthood fulfilled, blood sacrifices. John 2.19 says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus replaced the temple. Because Jesus was the one where we would come. He was the access point to God. He was the one that we would come and worship. How about this one? This is one of my favorites. Mark 7, 18 to 20. And he's in a discussion. I'm just going to jump right into it. Are you so dull? He asked them, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach. And then, out of the body. I'm not going to put my hands there. In saying this, Jesus declared, all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. Because it originates in the heart. It originates in the heart. So the Old Testament Jews, they were prohibited from certain foods as unclean. And it was a temporary part of God's way of making Israel distinct from the rest of the world. So some people say, oh, Christians just pick and choose the parts of the Bible they want to obey. Because the Old Testament talks about not eating shellfish. Yes, they weren't supposed to eat shellfish. Or bacon. I mean, who's complaining about not eating shellfish? If you can't eat bacon, that's a serious deal. But these were really important things. These were really important things. What was, what was their purpose? Setting them apart from the nations around them. Now, there's lots of other reasons you could probably give, but that's the biggest, I think, thing is that they were a distinct people, holy unto God. They did a lot of things that were strange. They didn't mix fibers in their shirts. Why? Because they weren't supposed to be mixed up into all the idolatry. There's lots of symbolism in the things that they did. So, do we obey those commands today as Christians? No, we don't. Because all these things, all of these, these things that set Israel apart as a, as a, as a specific uh, people group for God, we aren't the nation of Israel. 
We aren't the Old Testament nation of Israel. We are members of the kingdom of God. If you're a follower of Jesus today, that's who you are. You're a member of God's kingdom. So that, that food um, thing dramatically changed. Now when you talk about food, it's, you can eat anything. You shouldn't eat everything. Some stuff's really just bad for you. But you can, right? There's nothing, uh, there's no command against that. So I imagine a mom, on, you know, moms are always teaching their kids. My mom always taught me so many things. Imagine a mom having a kid who says, I don't want to eat my pork chop. And if they're smart, they'll use this argument against their mom. They'll say, well, the Old Testament Jews didn't have to eat their pork chops, so why do I have to eat my pork chop, right? And of course, most moms will say, well, somebody's starving in another country who'd love to eat that pork chop. But this is a new one you can use on your kids, right? You say, Jesus changed the food rules. So you can eat that pork chop. You're not under the law. You're not an Old Testament Israelite. Finish your food. <laughs> I don't know how it works in your house. But Jesus changed the priesthood, the temple, the blood sacrifice, the food laws, civil laws. They're changed because we're not Israel. Ceremonial laws, Passover. When he was on the cross and he said, it is finished, so much stuff was finished. So much was finished. It was fulfilled. It wasn't abolished. It wasn't treated like it was bad. It was good. It was something God gave the Israelites for a time period where they were going to represent God to the world. Now, God is wanting to be reflected to the world like we learned last week through Kurtz holding up the mirror to the light. That was amazing. He had this bright light. If you weren't here, dark room, bright, bright light in a massive mirror. And he was blinding us with it. But he's saying, we, it's the kingdom of God. It's the people of God who aren't just Jewish but are from many, many nations who reflect who God is to the nations. He's not limited to uh, just one nation that he was working through, through to show himself, not just Israel anymore. So, so many things have changed because of Jesus. He's fulfilled them. So Jesus becomes what sets us apart. He becomes what cleanses us from sin. He becomes what we remember together. And he becomes our access to God. So I, this is, I think, the basic rule of thumb that you could probably use when it comes to Old Testament laws. Either Jesus fulfilled it, or it's repeated in the New Testament and it still applies. I think that'll cover 99.9, and I'm not sure if there's much left. So if you, if you find something in the Old Testament and you say, well, I wonder if that still applies today. Well, think about it. Did Jesus fulfill it? Was it because they had moral laws, civil laws, ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws, priesthoods and sacrifices fulfilled in Jesus. The civil law doesn't apply because we're not the nation of Israel. The moral law, you find the moral law repeated in the New Testament. You find so many of those things just come transported over where they're saying, they're reiterating what was said in the Old Testament. So those things do apply. But you can find it in the New Testament so that you know that, you know with confidence that it does apply. So if you're a mom or a dad and you're teaching your kids and you say, well, how do we know what parts of the Bible we need to uh, obey? Well, 
really become a student of the New Testament. That's where we live. There's commands in the New Testament, including the Sermon on the Mount, which help us to understand what God requires and what he, he wants the people of his kingdom to live like and to act like. Let me get to the next verse. It says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus was fulfilling the law, not abolishing it, not erasing it, not throwing it out, but he was fulfilling it as he went along. And this happened through all the things that he did. But, you know, it happened in a couple ways. I talked about how Jesus is the new temple, Jesus is the new Passover lamb, Jesus is the new priesthood, he's the, new, he's the, he's the ultimate sacrifice once and for all, etc., etc. But if you read in context Matthew's writings, so you take, we're at the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 to 7. But if you read the first four chapters that come before that, and I won't go into it, it has got many, many prophecies. And the easiest way to notice if you read those four chapters is you'll find that it'll say Jesus fulfilled, or this was done so Jesus would fulfill, and then it lists some prophecy from the Old Testament. So it's another way that Jesus fulfilled the law. So in, so um, again and again, you'll say, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This is to fulfill this. Jesus uh, went, his dad and mom took him to Egypt to escape Herod. This was to fulfill this. All these babies died when Herod, Herod committed an ethnic cleansing on Bethlehem. That was to fulfill this. Fulfillment, 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 fulfillment. You see it all over those first four chapters. Probably in about five or six different places you'll find it. So Jesus was fulfilling all these things. And so these things aren't, these prophecies aren't to disappear until they're accomplished. They're not to be disregarded. The commands of the Old Testament aren't to be treated like trash, but they are fulfilled in Jesus. They become fulfilled in him. And, and the summary of all that is that God's revelation to Moses points to Jesus. And it is fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 19, Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands... And teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Right? So Jesus, uh, again, Jesus honors the law. But now as he's teaching, and we'll get into more in the, of the actual commands in the weeks to come. As he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he's amping up. Well, I won't say he's amping up. He's restoring the original intention of how the law is to work. See, how is a list of rules supposed to work? Well, a list of rules is just a list of rules, right? If you found, let's say, instead of being raised by loving parents, you were just deposited into, you know, some wilderness area with a checklist. I mean, there's a clipboard, and somehow you can read it early on in life, and you read it, and you real, and here's 100 rules for living your life. And you go, oh, okay. Well, now you can do that, and let's say you do it perfectly. Let's just do it, you do it flawlessly. Well, you might feel really good. I'm just, I, someone has given me this law, and I'm following it perfectly, and uh, that's just wonderful. Now, let's say, um, or let's just take that, that same analogy. You, you've perfectly completed the law. Now, how is that different from growing up in the house you grew up in? Because your house had rules. 
Somebody said, our house didn't have rules. No, they just had unstated rules. Every house has rules, right? You have things you can do and things you can't do, and things that will have repercussions, loss of privileges or discipline or the cold treatment or something else. But the difference between growing up and being raised or raising yourself with a list of laws and growing up in a home is that there's relationship. Hopefully there's relationship. God's law was always meant to be in relationship. It was always meant to be understand in relationship to the one who gave them. It wasn't meant to be just a list, right? I I read this quote this week. I, I don't know if I have it in my notes, but I thought it was helpful. Checklists flatter. So if I can do the whole checklist, I feel good about myself. So checklists flatter, but it's the heart that matters. Checklists flatter, but it's the heart that matters. You know, when the Israelites, there was, there was times in Israelite history where they did really good at obeying the rules and God was not happy. Do you know that? They would do all the sacrifices that were required. They would follow the letter of the law and God would be so mad at them. And you know what he would say? He said, you, you obey my law, but your heart is far from me. I mean, this is Mother's Day. We could, there's some relation there, isn't there? What if your kids, moms, what if your kids did everything you want them to do? Now, that sounds blissfully wonderful right now. But there's no love relationship at all. You might say, man, I'd settle for that right now. You know, just compliance? Oh, man, that would be a dream compared to what I'm experiencing in raising my children. But... Don't you think, don't you hope, don't you desire for it to lead to a loving relationship? Don't you also want that? And that's what God has always wanted with his people. He's always wanted people to not just look at a list of rules and comply with them. He wants something that flows out of the heart. Now, I think it's neat when I see this um, in families sometimes where it's like, yeah, it was all about rules for a while, but then kids caught on. And some of those rules they don't even need anymore. They automatically do some of those things. They learn those patterns of behavior. Maybe it's certain ways of respecting each other in the family, or maybe it's uh, certain things that in our family we just don't do that. But they come to value that and they go, yeah, in our family we don't do that because it's right. But they didn't know that they were, when they were young. But at somewhere along their maturity, they caught on. It is good to say please and thank you. Oh, yeah. And, and they do that. And they adopt it. It becomes their own value. Or it might even be better. It might even be that they go, oh, because I want to be a loving human being towards my parents, I I'll do these things. I'll do these things as part of the game plan for how we run our family, for how we live together. And now it flows out of the heart, not out of a checklist. 
And that's what God always wanted. And that's what he wanted in the Old Testament. That's what he wants in the New Testament. That's always what he's wanted from people. Jesus was talking to one guy and he said it this way. He says, what's the greatest commandment was the question. Here's the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So yes, there's bazillions of laws in the Old Testament. But Jesus says this about this this commandment. Oh, he goes on to say a second one. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Wow, it wasn't just that we do the checklist and get the merit badge. It was that we actually have a loving relationship with God. Now, Obeying God is part of how we express love. Loving our neighbor is how that works out in our day-to-day horizontal life. But it's the heart behind the commands is to have a loving relationship with God and to be motivated by gratitude towards God. Verse 20 says, For, if, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were the experts. They knew the law inside and out. But their hearts weren't where God wanted them to be. There's a story about, um, it's called Corbin. Corbin. Um, It was a, a deal where Uh, people would say, I know that I'm supposed to take care of my parents when they're old. But then they go to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and they're saying, is there any way out of this? And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees would say, well, maybe if you take that money that you're going to use to support your destitute parents and give it as a gift to God, then you can get out of it. Jesus discovered this and roundly denounced this. That this was terrible, what they were doing. What was wrong? It was their hearts. Their hearts were in such a terrible place. And they were using the law, they were using the commands of God to try to get away from the heart of God and what he was doing. So God wants a loving relationship with us. Romans 3.20. So how can we have a righteousness that's greater than Pharisees? It goes past the actions on the outside and goes to the heart and the motivations on the inside. But I want to talk about a little bit more than this because we're still in the same position that C.S. Lewis said we're in. I mean, without Jesus, the new law or the, the how to be part of this kingdom is still a sledgehammer to the back of the head when you realize you don't have a handle on those different areas of your life that Jesus is talking about in here. So what hope do we have? And just a little bit more, Romans 3.20 helps us to understand. I want to take you through a few more scriptures to help you understand where our hope comes from. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So what's, what's the help of, what's the great help of, the Old Testament law, and now today for us, the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching of the New Testament? Well, the first help is it makes us conscious of sin. So be thankful for that. 
People who are not conscious of their own sin are usually ungrateful people. Say, what? You mean when I realize that there's something dark and sinister inside my heart that I'm going to be a happy person? You can be because of Jesus. Now, without Jesus, probably not. Probably make you depressed in some way. But with Jesus, oh, it's so wonderful because you realize that God in his love is not wanting to hold that sin against you, but he's wanting to forgive that sin. And when you realize that he's, that's his posture towards you, then the heart begins, begins to grow in gratitude. You know what? I've, I've, I've been on this for several years of this greater awareness of my sinfulness, which produces a greater awareness of God's gracious response to me. So it's like if you're a child and you hear that God loves you, he forgives your sin, you think, I don't do much wrong. I guess that's nice of him. And then as you go on, you realize, ooh, I'm more of a sinner than I thought I was. Ooh, that's really nice of him. And then you go on and you go, oh, I can't believe I crossed that line I thought I'd never cross. And I feel such deep shame and remorse. And oh, that is really, really gracious of him to forgive. And that should be the deepening awareness of your life. That as you come to understand your own heart, and where it can go, that you give more and more praise to God that he forgives you. And that doesn't make you depressed or, or head hang down or shameful. In fact, it liberates you from the shame because that was Jesus' intention, to pull us out of the pit of shame, up with him, give us his forgiveness, give us his righteousness, and that our heads be lifted high in praise. We'd realize how great he really is. We'd be the happiest people around. We'd be the people with a song on our, on our lips because of what he's done for us. And that's, I've been experiencing this. I think I'm pretty early in the process. I think someday I'll look back and say, boy, when I was in my 40s, I thought I knew the grace of God. I was only dipping my toe in it. It's so much bigger. So you can't be made righteous through the law, even if you obeyed the whole thing. No one can do that, but you can't. Galatians 3.20 says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came, so we might be justified by faith. So what was the law? Well, it was a guardian. It was like a teacher. It sort of showed us what was wrong. Don't go there. Don't have other gods before God. Don't get into sexual immorality. You know, don't become greedy about money and, you know, all these different instructions, right? Don't go here. It's wisdom. It's good stuff. It didn't really have the power to stop us from doing those things. In fact, sometimes some parts of the scripture imply that it almost, you know, you didn't even know that you could do, until you know something wrong to do, you didn't, weren't even tempted by it. But you, anyhow, I won't get into that. That's other scriptures. The law was like a guardian until Christ came. Why? So that we might be justified by faith. So how are we made right with God? How are we, that's what justified means. How are we made right with God? Well, if you want to be right with God, it's by looking to what Jesus did for us. And that's what faith is. Faith is trusting God totally, trusting in the work that Jesus did for us on the cross totally. That's our job is to believe, to trust. Say, so what Jesus did for me 
is something I couldn't do for me. He lived a sinless life. I often re, re, uh, I have a five-year-old, so I often go through this with him because we're going through the book of Mark. I talked about, remember, who had never sinned? And he says, Jesus and God. That's what he says. It's great. It's a good start. And then I, I said, okay, yeah. And who, and who else? Who has sinned? And he says, everybody else. Good. You got it. You're getting it. Right? All have sinned. Fallen short of God's glory. We haven't, we haven't lived up to his perfect standard. But through faith, we can be justified. We can be made righteous through trusting God totally. What, you know what? What is your confidence? If you were to suddenly ushered into the presence of a perfect, sinless, holy God, what would be your confidence? Without Jesus, I would have none because I know me. I know the lines I've crossed. I know the moments where I've been shocked at what's come out of my mouth. Like when I've literally said afterwards, where did that come from? I know the struggles I've had with my internal thoughts. Maybe I've filtered them enough so people outside of me think I'm a good person. But on the inside, I know. So how, do I, how am I going to have confidence standing before a perfect, holy God who requires perfection? I won't have any except for Jesus. If it wasn't for Jesus, I'd have no confidence. But the scripture makes it clear I can have complete confidence in front of a holy, perfect God because Jesus was holy and perfect too. And when he lived that perfect life and died that death on my behalf, the great exchange happened because I trust that. I trust that. I trust that that, is the, that is, was God's plan. He saw me in my anger, my lust, my greed, my failure, my shame. He saw me and had mercy on me and sent Jesus on my behalf so that I could have Jesus' righteousness credited to my account while Jesus took on the shame and the pain and the penalty of my sin. So I can stand before holy God, not based on my track record. It wouldn't cut it. I'm not good enough. I can justify my actions all day long. I know when I'm standing in front of a holy God, that's going to melt and be nothing. But because of Jesus, we can have confidence. It says we can confidently approach the throne of grace because we're depending on him. So the law was our guardian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith, trusting in what Jesus has done for us. Romans 7, 4 to 6 says, So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. We died. That's what... Baptism is, we symbolize that. We get out water here and we dip someone in the water, just like Jesus died. We died. Just like Jesus rose from the dead, we rise to a whole new life in him. We died to the law through the body of Christ 
that you might belong to another. So I don't write on me, I don't have a t-shirt that says property of the Old Testament law. But I could have a t-shirt that says property of Jesus. That was the intention all along, to, to belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So here's the thing. So how do we, so when we come back to Jesus saying, you know, don't murder is one thing, but I tell you, don't be angry at someone. Don't commit adultery is one thing, but I tell you not to lust after someone who's not your own spouse. Love your friends, love your family, but I tell you, love your enemies. How do we come back to those things? We come back to them in a very different way. Instead of stepping up to the plate and going, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I'm really good at checklists. I'm really good at doing everything right. No, we don't come that way at all. In fact, we come a different way. First, we go to Jesus. We say, Jesus, I trust you. What you did on the cross for me is the only way I could be righteous in God's sight. But now that I am completely, 100% righteous in the sight of God, not because of me, but because of you. Now I come to those things differently. With hope. Don't murder. And don't be angry. Those aren't words that are hopeless now. They're destiny for me because of Jesus. So I come to that and I go, that's what God wants to do in me. My anger, which on my own I've never been able to control, or maybe I took a class so I could manage it, can be eradicated because of Jesus. On my own, couldn't do it. But with the, what's happened, because I have the righteousness of God, because I'm already righteous, because I'm not trying to get rid of my anger to earn my way with God, because that'll never work. But instead, because I'm already righteous, I got a song in my heart, because what Jesus has done, I'm full of gratitude. That's helping me with my anger. But then the power of God to deal with my anger. This is really hopeful. And the same for my greed and my lust and my pride and every other poison that's found in my heart, I have hope for now because I belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that I might bear fruit for God. And Jesus is the one who's helping me to bear that fruit. I'm not dependent on my own to do that but I'm trusting on his leadership in my life. So checklists flatter, but it's the heart that matters. Where is your heart today? Let me just say it again. The holy standard of God should make you feel nervous. It should make us all feel nervous. We don't measure up, but God knew that, so he provided someone to measure up for you. Jesus. And now that Jesus has come and lived the holy life we couldn't live, and died the sacrificial death on our behalf, the holy standard of God goes from being our greatest threat to a picture of our destiny. Would you stand with me? Worship team, invite you back.
Say, I want to be right with God. Maybe you're there today. You're just saying, I want to be right with God. Um, and maybe you've been trying to be right with God through just doing enough good stuff. And I'm hoping that today, I've been praying today, that if that's where your confidence lied in your being good enough, that that's been dislodged. That's so shakable. I hope it got shaken today. I hope you don't go out of here today going, I'm going to try harder and that will please God enough that he'll accept me. I hope there's no illusion about that in your mind. I hope it's clear to you that the only way to be right with a holy God who has a perfect standard is to receive the holy righteousness of Jesus who lived up to that perfect standard. And we do that through simply trusting that that is what we need. What Jesus provided is what we need. I want to lead you in a, just a simple prayer. It's three lines long. It's something that anyone could pray any day. If you're a Christian already, you could pray this prayer. But for some of you, you might be saying, I think I need to quit trying and start trusting so that God can then work out the transformation in my life that he means to, to do. So I'm going to lead you in this prayer. And can I get you all to say it with me? I mean, it's a prayer anyone can pray every day, but if someone's praying it for the first time, I don't want them to be embarrassed about saying it alone. But let's just pray together. Dear Father, thank you that you love me. And thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Help me live a life that honors you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're depending on today the power of the Holy Spirit to see the transformation in our lives.